Those of you who were with us on Sunday will uh, humor me. We're going to do a little bit of review rehash here to get us all back up to speed. We covered a lot of ground on Sunday on the image of God and what, what exactly that is, what exactly that isn't. And we're going to sort of transition to the next step here tonight. So if you recall from Sunday, if you were there, that we're doing this sort of in three parts. And the first part last Sunday was kind of laying the groundwork. We're doing the, the plot exposition. Tonight, we enter into sort of the big conflict, if you will. And we're going to explore sin and its impact on us as it pertains to all things related to the image and, and, and otherwise. And then this upcoming Sunday, we're going to capstone the series with an exploration of what exactly, as Christians, we are now to do as it relates to the image and how the Holy Spirit helps us to do that. So I'm excited to continue. So we'll go ahead and start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, again as a short review. I'm not going to rehash everything, but just to hit sort of the high hard points as it relates to God's image. In Genesis 1.26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we establish right up front that humans are made in the image of God. And that language is consistent through the Old and the New Testament where it talks about humanity in relationship to God. We are always portrayed as being in the image of God or in some passages according to the image of God. Some places it renders it likeness. They're very much the same idea. And that's an important distinction because when we get to passages like 2 Corinthians 4.4 or Colossians 1.15, go ahead and turn to Colossians with me. They both say essentially the same thing. We come across some different language. Whereas throughout, humans are always in the image of God. Colossians chapter 1.15, talking about Jesus, says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We are, in some sense, related to Christ, but we're not identical to Christ. Whereas we are in God's image, Jesus is, is God's image. And what we talked about is in light of what the New Testament says about us and what plans and intentions God has for us as image bearers, we'll quickly review those. That We'll look at uh, Colossians, also in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And having put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So we're being renewed according to this image of God, which is one and the same as saying the image of Christ, because the image of Christ is the image of God. So we're being renewed. Over in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, 
You don't have to turn there. I'll just quickly do this as a review, as I said. It says in verse 29 of Romans 8, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined... Predestined to what? To become conformed to the image of His Son, which is the same as the image of God, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words... As we are conformed to the image, Paul is essentially saying we become like siblings of Christ. Christ is the firstborn, and as we are conformed according to His image and become like Him, that is part of the process uh, that God has in mind for us, and He says that it will happen. It's It's a done deal. At a certain point in the future, this will occur for all those who are in Christ. And then lastly... The New Testament also talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about one more aspect of our relationship to the image as as the image is in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. And you'll recall, one of the things that I mentioned there is we get a little nugget, almost in passing, of theology here, but it's important that Paul actually calls the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Lord in this passage. That the Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Spirit is not an emanation of God. The Spirit is God Himself, one of the persons of the Trinity. But again, the focus of the verse is that not only are we being renewed, but it's through that process of renewal of some sort of change and repair that's happening that we actually become conformed. We become somehow different than we were. And ultimately, that results in us being transformed. There's something completely new that's happening. So we're going to look at a little bit of that more on Sunday specifically. But the important point is this. In all three of these passages about our renewal, our our being conformed, and our being transformed. There's a distinction that needs to be made. There is something that is being changed or doing the changing, and there's something that is not doing the changing. People and the image are in all of these passages. And the point we made is that in all of them, the image of God never changes. The image of God is fixed. It's is not being renewed, it is not being transformed because it's not damaged. People are damaged. And they are being renewed according to the image. Because remember, the image is Christ. He is the image. To say that the image of God is somehow in need of repair or change would be to say that Christ is in some way deficient. And that's simply not the case. So, the Bible is very clear. The image of God is undamaged unaffected by sin. We are damaged, and we need to be renewed according to the image which has never changed. So what is the image then? If it's fixed, if it's related so closely to Christ that we can say that Christ is the image of God, the image of God is not about any characteristics or any abilities that we possess, because that would imply that we can gain or lose more or less of the image of God. Which is problematic when you start talking about 
how people are all to be treated equally on the basis of the fact that we are all image bearers. If I can have less or more of the image than you, that doesn't set us up very well for equality. And so the image of God is fixed. It's undamaged. But we need to be renewed according to it. So the image of God then is not about a a characteristic we possess or an ability or capacity we have. Rather, the image of God represents God's intentions for us, not just individually, but corporately as humanity, as a creation of God. God, when he created humans, had a purpose in mind for what humans would be and what we were created to do. Creations serve a purpose. Things are created for something. And we, as God's creations, are no different. God created us for something. And by putting us in the image of God, He is saying that I have created you as humans for something that I have not created any other thing for. Which separates us not only from the rest of creation the animals, the fish, the the plants. But it also separates us from the angels and any other spiritual being that exists. The angels are not in the image of God. Humans are in the image of God. Otherwise, we would have to say that if angels were created at the very instance in the image of God, the same way that the Bible talks about humans, that would mean that Lucifer is in the image of God. And again, that's not really a a conclusion that the Bible warrants. It doesn't talk about him in that way. So we're unique in this regard, which means God has a unique purpose for us. So, we can talk about what those purposes actually are if we look at Christ, since Christ is the image according to which we're being conformed and, and renewed and transformed. So, if you'll go with me to Hebrews chapter 1, we briefly, briefly skimmed over this on Sunday, but it's worth revisiting. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, actually we'll we'll back up again like we did, Uh, let's start in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom... Also, he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the power, or by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is the exact representation of God, and What's more, the writer of Hebrews just isn't making this claim about Jesus. Jesus made this claim himself. Uh, Go with me. We're going to be in the the Gospel of John in two different places. The first is in John chapter uh, 10. You'll probably recognize both of these passages. And we'll start here in verse 25 for context. Jesus is being questioned. 
by some of the religious leaders. And he says, he answered them in verse 25 of John chapter 10, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And here it is in verse 30. I and the Father are one. In other words, no one can snatch them out of my hand because I and the Father are one. Jesus makes a very similar claim. If you hop over four chapters to John chapter 14, and we'll start, just start in verse 1 here. Again, for context, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus himself is, is making this uh, distinction, or he's drawing this conclusion about himself, saying, I represent God so closely that I am God. This is something in, in logic or philosophy called the law of identity. And it basically says that if you're comparing two things... If there's any trait that's true of one thing that's not true of the other thing, then these things cannot be said to be the same thing because there's a a difference between them. But if there's no differences at all between them, then they can be said to be the same thing. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying here. In terms of his character and who he is, if you want to know what God is like, here I am you will not find any differences between me and God. And therefore, we can say Jesus is God. So, this is who Jesus is. He accurately reflects 100% the attributes of who God is and what God is like. But it also says Jesus is the image of God, and it is the image of God into which we are being renewed and conformed and transformed. So here's the connection. God's intention, His purpose, His plan for humanity is this, that we would reflect the attributes of God so far as is humanly possible, because there are limitations to us, we are creatures. But that God, when He created us, He intended for us to reflect Him and His attributes 
as much as we possibly could. And if you want to know what that looks like, look at Jesus. He is the perfect representation of what it means for a human being to accurately reflect the attributes of God in a fallen world. He's the the display model, as it were. And he's a picture of what you and I will ultimately, if we are transformed, will come to be like in, in so far as we will accurately reflect God's attributes as much as we possibly can. Now, there's differences between us and Jesus, because Jesus is also divine, not just a human person. But again, insofar as it's humanly possible, God intends for us to reflect His attributes. And the fact that there are limitations to that isn't a bad thing. It's just a limitation of being a creature rather than being the Creator. But that is the image of God. That is the, the template, as it were, that God has for us and what He had in mind when He created us. Are we tracking on that? Okay. So here's where it gets sticky. God has these intentions for us. It's clear in the mind of God what we are to be, who we are to become. God has this plan, like we said on Sunday. He's like the architect. He has the blueprint drawn out for the building. He knows exactly what He wants that building to look like. But what's the problem? Do any of us look like that building? Not by a long shot. Something's wrong. And it's not because God's intentions have changed. They haven't. Sin has happened. So if sin doesn't damage the image, in other words, the the building doesn't look like it should, that has no impact on the blueprint. doesn't change the blueprint a bit. The image is the blueprint that's unaffected, but we clearly cannot live up to it. What happened? How did that happen? Here's the deal, and you you may know this, you may not. This might surprise some of you. The image of God is not the only image you are in. I'll say that one more time. The image of God is not the only image that you and I are in. Go with me to Genesis chapter 5. God created man in his image. Specifically in Genesis, that's Adam and Eve. God created them male and female. Then in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Anyone? The fall. Adam and Eve are tempted. They fall to that temptation. And something fundamentally is altered about Adam and Eve. Now, for purposes of... I mean, the the fall is such a huge topic. We could spend all kinds of time, and lots of people have, studying the fall and understanding exactly that. But but for our purposes here, I, I would submit to you that the fall... What is it? What is it about a lot of different aspects. It's like a diamond. You can look at it so many different ways and you can find new ways in which the fall has meaning. But personally, I see a lot of 
force behind the idea that the fall of Adam and Eve was essentially the same temptation that Satan himself succumbed to, which is why it was so easy for him to tempt them in this way. The temptation was autonomy. Personally, that's, my, that's, that's kind of where I land as I look at this. It is not that knowledge, which is what the tree would grant Adam and Eve, is something that somehow God wants to withhold from us. Knowledge is not a bad thing. God possesses all knowledge. But God had plans for how he would reveal that knowledge to Adam and Eve, and it was not in this way. See, God intended for human beings to have a theoretical knowledge of sin and an experiential knowledge of holiness. But instead, it's quite the opposite. We have a theoretical knowledge of holiness, and we got an experiential first-hand knowledge of sin. That is not how God intended for us to experience this knowledge and possess it. But we took it for ourselves. We displayed independence from God, similarly to how Lucifer did. He said, I don't want your plan. I want to do it my way. He didn't trust. We didn't trust. So we decided to be autonomous. We fell. That changed us. It changed the relationship. It did not damage the image. The image is about two things, connection and reflection. The connection with God is intact, but our ability to reflect that is, has been lost. In Genesis chapter 5, after this happens, Adam and Eve, this is after Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve have Seth. Now, presumably this was also true of Cain and Abel, but the first time we see it in Scripture is in reference to Seth. Uh, chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, excuse me, according to his image, and named him Seth. Every one of us was born in the image of God, we were also born in the image of our earthly father in the line of Adam. So we inherited two images that are in direct tension with one another. Because the image of God is the intentions and the plans and all the ways that we are to reflect God, but the image of Adam is weakness and sin and rebellion, and these do not get along. And this is the nature of the bondage to sin that we are all of us born into. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they rendered themselves incapable of reflecting the image of God in all the ways that God intended for them to do that, though that connection was still intact. So here's something interesting that God does. In His mercy, He kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. We don't always think of it in those terms. But here's why it was an unbelievably merciful thing for God to do. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at that account. It's verses 22 and 23. Genesis chapter 3, 22 and 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. 
So a few things. First of all, we need to distinguish, this is, might sound like splitting hairs, but there are important distinctions here. Adam and Eve were born immortal, but not imperishable. Here's the difference. They were born immortal, meaning they were able to not die. It would have been possible for Adam and Eve to live until God chose to transform their bodies into bodies fit for eternity. And they would have never had to experience death. They didn't have to die in order to undergo that transformation. But due to the very fact that God told them, don't eat the tree or you will die, it means that they were capable of death, even if it was never God's intention that they undergo it. Being imperishable, which is what the New Testament teaches our glorified bodies will be, incorruptible, means not just that we're able to not die, it means we are not able to die. Death is not even on the table anymore. Here's where that hits here. Adam and Eve have already fallen. They have rendered themselves, and therefore all of us, incapable of reflecting God in the way that God intended. The purpose for which humanity was put on this earth, is now out of reach. We know what it is, but we can't get there. I want you to imagine for a second, because we're all different, what is it that as you examine your own life, as you think about it, what is it that you feel you were put on this earth to do? What is it that gives you the deepest sense of meaning and purpose and significance that you feel like you and you alone are here to accomplish in your, in your lifetime? Now, you know that. You will live this whole life and you'll never achieve it. And not just this whole life you will never be able to die. You'll never be able to achieve it. And you can't die. You can't end it. So try as you might, try as you might to go and fill it with any other thing. It'll never fill the void. You'll never feel that sense of significance. You will never feel that meaning and that sense of fulfillment that you get when you're doing exactly what you know you were put here to do. God was not willing for us to experience that. Praise God. It is bad enough that sin renders us incapable for a lifetime, but not eternity. Not eternity. That's, that is too horrific. And so God said, no, I won't let that happen. That is a torture that none of us could possibly understand. And God saved us from that right in the garden. So we already prevented that from happening. And the great irony is this. We sought autonomy in our sin. We sought freedom to be able to know and do things on our own. Sin is the great contradiction. Because in the very thing that you're seeking after with sin, you lose it. And you get the opposite in exchange. We went after autonomy. We went after freedom. 
And instead, we became slaves. And we became in bondage. We actually lost all choice. We can't do what God put us here to do. We are now incapable of doing it. So much for freedom. So much for autonomy. So much for choice. So how do we get out of it? This is the state that we have gotten ourselves into. And I hope that you feel the weight of just how bad this is. This is about the the things that speak to the deepest parts of our being, meaning and significance and purpose, and we've lost our ability to attain them. How do we get that back? We can't. Not on our own. You can't get yourself out of a hole that you have put yourself in that's this deep. But God can. It is through the mercy of God through Christ that we are able to escape this situation. In Romans 5.8, Paul writes, concerning our salvation and the work of Christ on our behalf, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We could not achieve our purpose or meaning. And He said, "I." they don't deserve it. They got themselves into this, but I love them too much. I want them to be able to achieve this. How amazing would it be for them to do the thing that I put them here to do to be that, to reflect all that I intended for them, I can make a way for that to be possible still. In Colossians, Paul elaborates a little bit more on this. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Christ came to earth to live a human life on sin's turf. He came to do what we couldn't, in order to defeat sin, to remove sin as a barrier standing between us and being what God always intended us to be. Now, that doesn't mean that anything that we do is now somehow our pat on the back, because we couldn't even get into the position of beginning to be who God created us to be had God not first come and Christ died to make that possible. So this is what he did. By dying, he said, Sin, I came to your doorstep. And I lived as a human under all the influences of the world and the devil. And I didn't choose autonomy. I remained dependent on God. I lived as God always intended humans to live. And that broke the power of sin. And it allowed for us to become something different. How is that possible? Since Seth was created in the image of his father, Adam, 
It's an interesting theological side note. And there's, there's a whole other discussion. I think it's interesting that at least part of the theory of the theology of sin is this idea that sin, in a very real sense, is passed down through the Father. And if you read Genesis chapter 5, how Seth is in the likeness of his father, not his mother necessarily, that would seem to lend credence to that. And there are other passages that deal with this. So what is the significance then of Christ not having an earthly father? No inherited sin. We're back to the way that God created humans before the fall. No sin. And Jesus lived perfectly. He did it the way God always intended. So by doing that, we'll turn to a few other passages and see what the significance of that is. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Paul writes, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God or the image of God, or which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. One more passage. We'll go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. This ought to be a, a familiar memory verse for some of us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. So you see, this is, this is the gospel. I don't know if you knew this was a gospel message tonight. This is a gospel presentation. We were created for something, meaning and purpose and significance, and we lost our ability to achieve that. But God in His mercy made it possible to do that again. But... We can't do it through our old self, our old humanity, our old way of being human. There is something about that that will never be capable of reflecting God the way He intended. And so, we need to become something new. This is not a repairing of our sinful self. This is not a a fixing of the thing that was broken. This is something different altogether. Paul talks about it in terms of putting on a new outfit, a new set of clothes, that we're changing clothes. We're not stitching up the old clothes. We're not washing them and trying to make them look nice. We're throwing them away. We're done with that way of being human. And we're going to be human a new way now, according not to Adam's way of being human, but according to Christ's way of being human. And it's only because of what He did that we can make that switch And it's only because of what He continues to do through the Spirit that we can begin to grow in and actually start the process of reflecting God in all the ways that He intended us to be. That process of reflecting God is what we call sanctification. 
That's going to be the topic of Sunday's message. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you have made a way for us to reflect you in all the ways you have intended. God, that you have made a way for us to fulfill the deepest meaning and significance and purpose that we feel in our hearts. God, we can now fill that void. We are not doomed to live a life of emptiness and endlessly seeking after things that can never really fill us up. Thank you, God. Thank you. You have made it possible to be a human in a new way. To put off our old man and to put on something new and to get that meaning and purpose back. You are a good God. And we thank you for loving us enough to do that for us, even though you didn't have to, even though we didn't deserve it, and even though it came at great, great personal pain and cost for you. Thank you. We love you. We pray that we would see ourselves, we would see our purpose, and we would see you, God, in a new and fresh way. And I pray for those who are able to make it on Sunday that we would come excited to grow in our reflection of you. That we would step ever closer to reflecting you in all the ways that you have always intended for us to do that. We love you, God. Thank you, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen.